0: The Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is the can't miss event of the year for rare disease stakeholders. The summit is the largest gathering of rare disease patients, advocates, and thought leaders worldwide. Join Global Genes October 3rd and 4th at the Hotel Irvine in Irvine, California, to take advantage of this opportunity to connect and learn from more than 200 experts in rare disease leading 100 educational sessions. For more information or to register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2018 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Ella B. Frame's daughter was diagnosed with CDKL5 disorder, a rare neurological condition that causes treatment-resistant seizures and often severe developmental and cognitive impairments, she co-founded the International Foundation for CDKL5 Research and worked to create a roadmap to a cure. Now she's focusing on clinical care and advocacy for CDKL5 patients. We spoke to Frame president and founder of the CDKL5 Research Collaborative and a Global Genes 2018 Rare Champion of Hope nominee about the condition. Her work as a patient advocate and her efforts to create centers of excellence to improve clinical care of CDKL5 patients. Catherine, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Danny. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We're going to talk about CDKL-5, the work you've done around the condition, and the approach you've taken to create clinical centers of excellence for patients. Let's start with CDKL-5 itself, though. What is it? How does it manifest itself, and how does it progress? What What's the prognosis for someone with the condition?
1: Well, CDKL-5 stands for, it's a long name, but it stands for cyclin-dependent kinase-like five. And it is a protein that all of us have in our brain. And that protein, what we know so far, is that it is vitally essential for normal brain function and development. So CDKL5 disorder um, affects children. Um, they're born with a genetic mutation. It's on the X chromosome. And that genetic mutation means that they, they do not have either enough CDKL5 protein or they have... Uh, a um, dysfunctioning CDKL5 protein in the brain and so they are not able to have that normal brain development that the rest of us enjoy and that causes them to have seizures from a very early uh, early time point often uh, from around the age of uh, two to three months old usually before the age of six months old and along with the seizures uh, they also tend to have um, Varied uh, developmental delays or impairments and multiple other um, comorbid conditions. So many kids with CDKL5 suffer from cortical visual impairment, so they have some level of blindness. In addition, many kids have uh, really severe gastrointestinal. Difficulty. So, they have trouble either with swallowing or digesting. Many of them do require a feeding tube to help with their nutritional status. Uh, in addition, many kids have problems with pneumonia or lung function and also with scoliosis. So, they have curvature of the spine. Uh, most of these kids, unfortunately, have uh, extreme difficulty in walking, talking feeding themselves or helping themselves in any way, and they're usually dependent on others for uh, all or most of their care. Uh, there are children, there's a wide spectrum of the CDKL-5 disorder. There are some kids who are mildly affected who are able to eventually walk, who can speak a little bit or have some form of communication, uh, and then there's a the severe end of the spectrum with just severe debilitating seizures and really uh, complete... Um, physical and cognitive impairment so there's a wide spectrum and as I mentioned children are born with this disorder it shows up in the first few months of life um, but it is a lifelong condition for which there is no current treatment or cure we don't really know the prognosis uh, exactly uh, unfortunately we have lost many children to CDKL5 disorder uh, at all points and uh, along the age spectrum uh, from early early um, infancy uh, through teenage years and older, and many of these children, unfortunately, pass away from either the severe seizures, from uh, pneumonia or other infection that leads to sepsis. Um, those seem to be the leading causes of, um, of mortality in our children.
0: Are there available therapies for CDKL5, and if not, what's done to treat these patients?
1: I wish I could say there were available therapies. Unfortunately, at this time, there really are no treatments or cure. Uh, what, however, there are the good news is that there are three drugs in various stages of clinical development that um, are looking at treating the seizures, which really seems to be the number one major manifestation and uh, problem with CDKL5. So, uh, so that's, uh, something that is hopeful. Uh, but right now all treatment at this time is really focused on getting control of the seizures using a combination of current anti-epileptic medications, uh, various diets, and other approved modalities like a vagal nerve stimulator. And many parents have turned to CBD oil as an alternative option, and they've seen various, um, varying degrees of success with that. Along the lines of the other comorbid conditions that I mentioned, such as cortical visual impairment, GI issues, scoliosis, there are therapies that focus on those issues in particular. So, for example, in cortical visual impairment, many children have vision therapists, or for scoliosis, some of the children wear braces or they need surgery to help correct the scoliosis and so on. But there's really no novel uh, specific therapies uh, to address the needs of our CDKL-5 uh, children. Uh, one of the big pushes, though, that is uh, really showing promise is early intervention and aggressive physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy, and then really focusing on communication strategies for our children.
0: How well understood is the condition, and how does it relate to other rare epilepsies or developmental disorders?
1: So CDKL5, unfortunately, has turned out to be a rather complex kinase. And it's involved in several different functions, um, in, in neuron development and maintenance of, of the neurons and the brain connections. So, while we have significant and even exponentially more understanding of CDKL5 now compared to when we first started, honestly, Danny, we still have so much more to learn. And I really believe, you know, the brain is truly the last frontier of the human body that we're, that scientists are trying to understand because it's infinitely complex. And I think that CDKL5 has so many uh, areas in which it works in the brain and many connections and functions that we are still learning about. So it's turning out to be very complex.
0: Your daughter was diagnosed with the condition in 2008. How was your daughter diagnosed and how difficult was it to get a diagnosis?
1: Kira was three years old when she finally received the diagnosis but her condition actually started when she was two months old. Uh, That's when she had her first seizure. And her doctors started from two months on, started looking at uh, obvious causes, and then they moved on to genetic testing. But all of her tests came back normal. And it wasn't until 2008, when Kira was having um, a very disturbing pattern of seizures, that her local medical team, who are experts in their own right, were really puzzled. They had never seen anything like this before. So they sent us to the Cleveland Clinic to be evaluated, and after five days of inpatient testing there, many invasive tests, there was still no answer. But I'll never forget, at the the end of that visit, the neurogeneticist that we saw, he said to me, I have just one final genetic test that I want to run. I don't think your daughter, Kira, has this, but let's check it just to say we've looked at everything. And I still get goosebumps now thinking about it and telling you about it, but four weeks later we got a phone call that it was the CDKL5 uh, gene that was involved. She had a mutation on CDKL5. So for us, it was a long road, but, Danny, honestly, many families have waited much, much longer to receive a diagnosis and have gone through, they've been misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, um, or, or living with just the unknown for so many years some have received their diagnosis in their teens or young adult years even. So, really incredible. But nowadays, with all of the improved genetic testing and there are epilepsy panels that can test for like 150 to 200 epilepsy genes all at one time, uh, many children are receiving the, the correct diagnosis now within the first, you know, three to six months of life, which,
0: um, which is really important. At the time your daughter was diagnosed, how well understood was the disease, and and what was the medical and advocacy landscape around CDKL5?
1: In terms of what was known at the time, there were, when we received the diagnosis in 2008, we did a literature search uh, in the medical literature, and there were about ten articles total in the literature. Two were about the discovery of the gene, that had happened in 2004, so really just a few years before we received the diagnosis. And then there were a handful of case reports and a couple of small case series um, and a few that, that theorized on what the CDKL5 gene and protein actually did. So there was very little known. There was virtually no research occurring. There was a suggestion that it was associated with another disorder called Rett syndrome. So we reached out to the Rett syndrome community at that time. But in terms of advocacy um, or even connecting with other families, at the time Kara was diagnosed, there were about 70 fam- seventy There were 100 families in the world that we knew of um, that had found each other through social media. and um, And so, but there were no advocacy groups. And so that's at that point that my husband and I, With our background and sort of our new diagnosis and determination that we were going to change things, we joined forces with a handful of other parents and we started a research organization and an advocacy
0: organization. You co-founded the International Foundation for CDKL5 Research and served as both the president and science director for the organization for many years. As you think about creating a research agenda for a disease, a rare disease, how do you assemble the necessary parts and prioritize what's needed?
1: I'll have to tell you, you know, we came into this really uh, quite shell-shocked from the diagnosis and never imagining that we would be in this kind of um, position or circumstance. And so we really, we had to think long and hard as uh, as both a physician and my husband as a scientist. what What made sense? How are we going to do this? So we actually sat down. And we put together what we called a roadmap to a cure, and we laid out each piece that we thought was required along the way to reach our final goal of of clinical care and treatments and a cure. And we discovered or realized that the top priority really had to be um, that we had to develop the basic scientific tools in order to begin research. We had there was no information on the function of CDKL5, so there was. No way we were going to ever get to the end point of the clinical care until we started with the basics. And so that's what we really focused on. And we uh, we started to build those tools of developing a, an animal model, of developing cell lines, and in particular induced pluripotent stem cells, and other uh, basic tools that researchers from all over would then be able to use and build on. So that was our first step. And then we knew that we had to start to gather all of the families together uh, and, and, and establish a database because we had to collect clinical information. We had to understand what was the spectrum of CDKL5. How did it? You know, what was the phenotype or the, the physical characteristics and the natural history of CDKL5? So we we started a database to really um, start to gather that information. And in addition, we also knew that. Um, uh, eventually we were going to need to start centers of excellence. And so um, we needed to be able to, to gather patients to particular centers where data could be curated and expertise could be developed and so forth. So, um, and then everything builds off of that.
0: You mentioned there are three drugs in development today. What do you think is allowed for the progress you've seen?
1: Uh, well, for that I really attribute that to strong collaboration um, between centers of excellence and between the um, family and patient organizations out there and pharma. Uh, we've been really blessed from the very beginning we have encouraged collaboration between our basic scientists, our clinicians, the epidemiologists who are collecting the data in terms of the natural history and then uh, really uh, making sure that everybody is speaking to each other. Eventually, we had enough information and understanding of CDKL-5 that we were able to invite pharma to the table, and um, having industry get involved was really, uh, you know that next step in getting drugs to clinical trial. But the main thing was really identifying the mechanism or the pathways by which CDKL-5 works, so that we could find specific drugs uh, that could target those pathways and hopefully make a difference.
0: More recently, you've shifted your own focus from the research agenda to clinical care and advocacy. Why is that?
1: Well, as I mentioned, you know, basic and translational research is really moving along nicely, and it's so wonderful to see that and have been a part of that. But we also know that it has been 10 years, and early and fundamental research by nature is often slow, um, and we believe that there are still clinical areas that have not been tapped into yet. The Centers of Excellence, when we established those many years ago, we knew it was going to take time to build those up. and we've and they're building up and they're continuing to grow and see patients, and that's that's exactly perfect and and how it should be. Um, many people think that innovation will organically evolve from these centers, but I truly believe that it needs to be curated. And that's the new focus that I want to take. Um, and I really want to build on what the centers have started. So we want to start looking at novel therapies and approaches, we want to start looking at neuroplasticity of the human brain and neurohabilitation because I really believe, you know, with all of the the translational research that's happening with the drugs and clinical trial, that we're going to have treatments and a cure in the near future, however, our children need to be in the best possible condition to benefit from those therapies when they become available. And so I really want to focus on that neurohabilitation, looking at neuroplasticity, um, and then I want to work with improving um, the therapies that our children have and really focusing on intensive therapies. The other thing is there's really a lot of uh, lack of awareness betr- in the medical profession beyond the uh, beyond the epilepsy uh, field. And so one of my main goals is to really help bridge that gap. And I feel that I can do that as having been on both sides of the doctor-patient relationship, I really believe that I can help the medical professionals understand what the patient experience is like, what it is that families are looking for and what they need, and hopefully bring that to the table. So uh, that's one of the other things we're looking at. And then, of course, I'm starting to think as my daughter gets older, Eventually, we're going to have to transition to adult care, and what does that transition look like? She's going to have to change um, schools or go into um, daycare programs. She's going to have to move from pediatric care to adult care in terms of um, any kind of medical treatments that she receives. So that is another area that really has not been addressed, and I feel that it's vitally important for so many of our families that are either approaching that time or or, uh, or going through that now. And so I want to really um, make that transition smooth, and that's another focus for our new organization.
0: As you've seen leading hospitals create centers of excellence for this condition, how has that transformed care, and, and what need is it addressing?
1: That's really a great question, and I just want to say that I have really learned. You know, we we learned from other Organizations and disorders or diseases that have been successful in finding treatments and, and we really modeled ourselves after other and bigger, uh, dis- um, diseases and, um, you know, we're so appreciative of them being trailblazers in this. And what we've discovered for us, and I believe they've already shown, is that when you have a center of excellence, it allows for doctors to become experts in a field. So, Prior to us creating the Centers of Excellence, one doctor might have seen one child with CDKL-5. They knew nothing about it. Um, the family was the one that knew more than the doctor and was trying to teach them. But that information sat with the doctor. They didn't know what to do with it. There was nobody to share it with. Uh, and and it, that information and data that they collected on that child sat there. And so by bringing... Doctors together by creating these centers and, and bringing patients to these centers, the doctors themselves become experts by suddenly seeing 30, 40, 50 children with CDKL5 and starting to see for themselves what the difference is in the spectrum of the disorder, response to treatments, etc. And likewise for families, they're able to go and see these doctors now who have experience and are familiar with what the families are going through, what the children are experiencing, and and they're able to receive guidance and guidelines from the doctors. One of the biggest things that's going to come out of these centers, and, and it's already starting to happen, is that standards of care are being developed. And this is vitally important because standards of care – are needed for insurance coverage. They're needed for guidelines for therapies in the school system or out in the community. Um, standards for um, for communication and and just you know the whole uh, spectrum of what is needed to treat a child with CDKL5. So standards of care are being um, developed. And then one of the biggest, um, I think, one of the most important areas that a center of excellence plays is that it becomes a natural place for all of this cutting edge and aggressive clinical research that we've been talking about, including drug trials and other clinical interventions because we have now groups of patients together and that data um, can be collected. It also allows for much easier collaboration between the doctors and between other centers of excellence. So I really think it brings the community together and it also fosters faster Um, exchange of data and also um, collaboration, and I think it pushes the field forward at a much faster pace than we would have otherwise seen.
0: We're at this strange time where diagnostically we're able to identify genetic mutations but may not understand what they mean. What advice would you offer to other parents heading down the path of a, a new diagnosis where there may not be the research advocacy or, or drug development in
1: place? I get that question a lot, and I'm really glad that you asked me because this is a passion of mine, which is just helping other, other, uh, rare, organization, or other rare diseases and organizations get started. I really would say that um, to start a scientific program for a new disorder, I think you need what we call a scientific champion to help you. And you know that person um, is going to be someone who um, is with a disorder that is probably similar to yours, um, or has similar symptoms to your child, even though um, you're not sure if they're related in other ways. But I would I, I would look for that person by talking to other organizations um, that, like I said, have a similar uh, disorder. They can, that person can often help you. Um, was getting to know some of the scientists that are working in the field that have been very helpful or successful in the research. In our case, we had a lot of help from Rett syndrome, the Rett syndrome community, so rettsyndrome.org in particular, and they really helped us get started. Um, So that was the first step for us was reaching out to them. And then the next thing that we did was we did a scholarly – we did a literature search on Google Scholar. Um, to help us identify any work that that was published in the field. We didn't find much when we first started. Now there's hundreds of papers, which is great. But for these ultra-rare disorders, um, do a literature search, see what's out there, and that's a great place to get started because if you're lucky and you identify some even case reports or any kind of preliminary research, that can be a real starting point um, to identifying researchers in the field. Reach out to them, get connected. Um, the next step I would say is put together a really strategic plan of your top three or four projects that will help move your field forward, whatever that might be. Um, in our case, we identified that we needed an animal model, the um, stem cell model, antibodies, and a database. Those were the, the key projects that we felt we needed to start with. every Every disorder might be different, but really if you can can find somebody that can help you develop that strategic research plan i would recommend that and then finally i would say stick to your agenda because it's so easy to get distracted especially because as parents we are so desperate for things to happen quickly and it's so easy to hear about new gene therapy or uh, you know, um, miracle cures like CBD and and so forth, that we, we are really anxious to jump on board with those and it's easy to get distracted. But when you're starting off, it's really important to stick to your agenda, get those basic tools laid out, and then start to build on that. Um, if you don't have those basic tools, then research really can't progress and everything will be delayed. So that would be really important. And I would say finally, uh, really... Bring families together, try to start a patient advocacy group because there's strength in numbers, and um, and, and try to stay cohesive and, um, and really start raising awareness amongst your family and the medical professionals in your community. Uh, start to advocate at the state level and the government level to make your disorder known um, because you really need to get people behind you. Otherwise, things aren't going to move as you'd hope.
0: Catherine Ellen Frame, president and founder of CDKL5 Research Collaborative and the 2018 Rare Champion of Hope nominee. Catherine, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Danny. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine, Performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at Danny at Levine Media Group.com.